We live in an interconnected world where the questions are complex, and so we have babble undone. And it exists to have a conversation about issues of interest to all of us, or um, maybe things that make you a little little curious. I'm Johnny Moore. I'm the co-host alongside Archbishop Joseph D'Souza. I'm an American evangelical leader. He leads the Good Shepherd Movement and the All India Christian Council. He comes from the East. I come from the West. So naturally, we meet in London. So, Bishop D'Souza, what are we talking about today? Today, we have to talk about Israel. We have to talk about October 7th. We, t- we have to talk about the irrationality that's going on around the world and the dangers that are therein if you do not confront straightforward evil. And for that, we are going to have a Jewish rabbi. And not not just any Jewish rabbi. Rabbi Abraham Cooper is the associate dean and the director of global social action for the famed Simon Wiesenthal Center, one of the most impactful human rights organizations in, in history. He's also the current chair of the U.S. Commission for International Religious Freedom. He's been named one of the 10 most influential uh, religious leaders in America, but his influence goes far beyond America. It is uh, absolutely global. And uh, we are so, so pleased that uh, amidst meetings with uh, world leaders and constant press interviews and travel all around the world that Rabbi Cooper's joining us here now. Um, not everyone hearing uh, us speak now uh, know, uh, know you as we do. And, and I think we'd be surprised uh, about uh, how many people know about Simon Wiesenthal. And you're, you're there at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. And so I, I, if you could take like, you know, uh, 45 seconds and, uh, and and give us a summary of uh, of of you and then and then you know a, li- a little more about about uh, about Simon Wiesenthal just to provide some context uh, for our conversation well thank you and uh, thank you for my dear friends for having me on this uh, podcast uh, I grew I was born and bred in in Brooklyn New York but at a time back in another century when names like Martin Luther King jr and Bobby Kennedy and others, when uh, American society was really roiling for change and with change, the difference, of course, is we had Martin Luther King back then, and uh, today we have a whole different setting. But the whole, I think, underpinnings for my generation, I was born in 1950, a few years after the end of World War II, deep sense of frustration to say, and anger about the six million Jews who'd been murdered, uh, the kind of um, of anger against our parents' generation, which of course was not justified, but who knew, uh, that they didn't do enough to stop it. Uh, and looking also at the, uh, at the King uh, example in a democracy in which you can bring about change, you may have to pay a price, you do it in a nonviolent way. There's uh, the emerging new media, you know, new, all new stations, et cetera. That's sort of the milieu that I, I fit in. I grew up in the Soviet Jewry movement at a time of the peak of the Cold War. No one ever thought back then that there would ever be a post-Soviet Union era. We had three million Jews in the Soviet Union who were suffering already from a cultural uh, genocide. Fast forward, I spent time studying in uh, Jerusalem in 1968 and 69 at yeshiva amazing experience thought my love affair with the holy land and um later on uh you know in jewish families the oldest is usually the physician and the second one's the uh 
going to be the lawyer. So my brother is a phenomenal, respected pediatric cardiologist. And although I got into, uh, I was accepted into NYU Law School, um, I was smart enough not to go. I went in, I met a guy by the name of Rabbi Marvin Heyer, who was up in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, a few years later, decided, you know, I didn't want more school, landed up going to Vancouver, Canada with my bride, uh, starting our life together, basically. And uh, two years later, came down to Los Angeles in 1977, we put together two institutions, the Menachem Begin School of Jewish Studies and the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Now, in the middle of that summer of 1977, uh, Rabbi Heyer disappeared for three days. We were still like putting a building together. He went to Vienna and he met with Simon Wiesenthal, a man who had lost 89 members of his family during the Nazi Holocaust, who was too weak to stand in Mauthausen in May 45, when the US soldiers came and liberated the living skeletons. Probably a week later, he would have starved to death. Um, and uh, he devoted his life, uh, decades from that minute on, to bringing Nazi war criminals before the bar of justice, but in a deeper sense, resurrecting the very foundations of justice that the Nazis had almost succeeded in erasing. And when the Rabbi Heyer came to him, uh, quoting King Solomon, who said, uh, you know, a good name is more precious than oil. We're here to take your good name. And Mr. Wiesenthal said, well, what are you going to do with it? If you're going to build a little institution where people come to say the memorial prayers, the cottage, twice a year, I'll give you a letter. But if you want my name, I'm an activist. So I know that you're helping with Nazi war criminals, but there's a much broader area that has to take place. Well, I grew up in the streets of New York as an activist of punk, and uh, unbelievably, here is one of the unsung heroes of uh, of the 20th century and of our people, uh, whom I got to work with and to know for uh, 29 years. So that's sort of the, um, uh, I would say, the, the, the springboard for everything else that's happened. And um, my basic job at the Simon Wiesenthal Center is to be a, a troublemaker. <laughs> but our basic goal at the Simon Wiesenthal Center is to actually educate people so it's not just a matter of screaming and shouting and moaning but of actually creating relationships and going from there and and yet uh as we're talking now um you know we're we're seeing this um astonishing rise in 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 global anti-semitism uh we're sitting here in london you know i i um I was very, very happy when I walked through Trafalgar Square last night and I saw the menorah was still there. And I went and I Googled online and discovered, oh, but they canceled the ceremony <laughs> that they do every every year here. I mean, people marching in the streets, you know, all, 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 all over the world. Um, you know, how, how do you view um, anti-Semitism? To, we'll get to what's happening now, but but. What is anti-Semitism? You know, how do you view anti-Semitism? You know, why, why, why can't this go away finally, once and for all? And are you surprised with what we have seen since October seventh? Yes. Right. So let me let me start uh, with the last with the last point about whether being surprised again. Let me quote Simon Wiesenthal. I was with him in 1980 when a college student asked him, "Were you surprised by how many Nazis there were?" And he said, "No." 
I was only surprised by how few anti-Nazis there were. Right now, that is the parallel situation. We know we have friends. We know we have allies in the interfaith, multi-faith domain. Um, we know our neighbors are overall, you know, great and decent people. But in terms of the town square, not a lot of folks have shown up. And I think that, coupled with the moral rot that has set into uh, the elite universities of the United States, including MIT, Cornell, uh, Columbia, the UC system out here on the West Coast, um, uh, Harvard, Yale. Uh, this is something that runs, uh, you know, extremely deep. And uh, when you have a situation in which you've touted now for a decade, we're creating safe spaces on our campuses. We have to be able to use pronouns in a certain way uh, microaggressions, all the rest of this, uh, you know, new narrative, uh, which rolls over and embraces the pro Hamas narrative. So you have a combination of, uh, yes, um, free speech for me, but not for thee, safe spaces for me, but not for thee, uh, basically sending uh, Jewish uh, students to twist in the wind. Well, you know, um, I think one big difference between now and the 20th century is there now is a state of Israel and despite the horrible failures of October 7th uh, it's amazing what they're doing right now to fight back uh, again the situation and if I might just say I think there's one other sin on both sides of the Atlantic that we're all culpable with and that is those of us who believe and understand in good and evil don't talk about good and evil enough. We collectively kind of dance around it. We look for the right verbiage in order to, you know, to be accepted and to, you know, it's so the idea of good and evil is based on that there are core values. And the people who are on this podcast believe there is a God and that uh, either those values were instructed directly by God or inspired by him. But overall in societies, of course, across Europe, but increasingly in North America, the whole notion of good and evil is is really eroding. And that's something I think should be job one for all of us to get back and talk about it, because otherwise in the TikTok generation, you watch three or four of their propaganda for, uh, videos that the Chinese communists make sure you see, uh, you become an expert on what's going on in the Middle East History doesn't count, ethics doesn't count, but to see the com complete corruption of the moral GPS of presidents of elite universities, that should be sending alarm bells, not only to Jews or the faithful, but right across the board uh, in, in, our, uh, in our societies. And there's no guarantee that we're gonna win because I don't think we've really actually showed up yet to the fight. What, why don't you um, take us to October 7th for just a second, Rabbi? What, what was it like to, um, to experience uh, that day as a part of the Jewish community, not only for you, but for anyone anywhere around, around the world? So it's, it happened I was with my family in Denver with our grandchildren. And because of hate crimes and the targeting of synagogues there was just a shooting 
uh, by uh, a gentleman with an Arab name yesterday on the eve of uh, Hanukkah uh, in Albany, New York. He was shooting bullets into a synagogue. Nobody was hurt. He was, you know, he was detained. So because there is uh, very good um, security, I walked, someone pulled me outside and said, you have to see what's going on on CNN. Our security guard had CNN because on on the Shabbat, plus it was also the holiday of Simchat Torah, we don't use cell phones or iPhones or the rest. And um, it took even then, it was already nighttime in Israel. Most of the horrors had already uh, been uh, perpetrated. But what became clear uh, to us in a matter of uh, certainly 12, 24 hours. This was not just the next round of violence between Hamas and Israel. You know, because most people just say, oh, okay, there was a fourth round, now there's a fifth round. No, the targeting of, of uh, uh, the civilian population, the mass murder, more Jews murdered on one day since the the Nazi Holocaust, the mass rapes, the mass kidnappings, uh, the glee and celebration. Understand, right? Simon Wiesenthal's work as the Nazi hunter was extremely difficult for two reasons. Number one, governments like the United States and the United Kingdom didn't care. And number two, the Nazis had worked very diligently to erase the evidence of their crimes against humanity. Hamas was live streaming their crimes against humanity. They were met with glee and celebration when they came back into Gaza proper. When you watch the now you know, famous 43 minutes that have been put together just from their footage, uh, and uh, I, I didn't want to go into the details of what they did to babies and to women and to foreign workers. Uh, this, was, uh, this was the goal of Hamas that day probably with a good boost from their uh, Iranian paymasters, but the level of barbarity and evil that had been unleashed, I myself didn't fully understand what Pre Prime Minister Netanyahu said, right you know, that night, he said to the Hamas leadership, you're all dead men. I couldn't understand it. What do you mean you're all dead men? Then when you saw and you began to understood, understand what had happened, this wasn't it's sort of like the asset. It's not a fight between two militaries or even a guerrilla attack uh, meant, you know, which probably they could have uh, to attack military installations right into the heart of Israel. And by the way, one other thing, this was into southern Israel within its recognized international borders. There are no settlements there unless, like Hamas and frankly, like the Palestinian Authority and frankly, like so much of the media, everything in Israel is a settlement. Therefore, everything is fair game. Um, it, it's a, an amazing situation in which, uh, if you know Jewish people, and maybe only a rabbi can say it, we're always bickering with each other. I mean, the Talmud encourages asking questions. We never stop asking questions, and we rarely listen to the family member who's trying to give an answer. Then we sit down on a couch. We all want to put our feet on the same coffee table. We're a very messy people, and Israel's a very messy democracy, to put it mildly. But what happened as a result of that day is the family came together. 
with a resolve that I hope the politicians in Israel will, at the end of the day, deserve to have that resolve and commitment, even though most of them, probably including the prime minister, know that when this is over, they're gone because they failed the citizens of the state of Israel. So um, to come full circle for many, many decades, Israelis thought that anti-Semitism was a diaspora problem. And if you ask what anti-Semitism is, you know uh, what Mad Libs, the game, Mad Libs? (laughs) Yes. Right? So here's the way anti-Semitism works. If you're in a capitalist system where it's dollars uberalis, so uh, the Jews are communists. If you're in the Soviet Union, the Jews are capitalists. So it's sort of like Mad Libs. I imagine uh, whether you're in uh, India or Bangladesh or... or, uh, uh, or China or Nigeria, depending on who you are, you just slot in the other. And so even in places where there aren't Jews, like Malaysia, there are no no Jews. They're taught from birth to hate us. When you come, uh, when you bring uh, representatives of hostage, hostage families uh, in many places, uh, a lot of people just don't want to hear it. They've absorbed the narrative. It is shocking that it is not just pro-Palestinian, it's pro-Hamas. And so you have, for example, we have uh, at the Wiesenthal Center for the last uh, half a year or so, a new children's advocate. So I didn't know this. We're an NGO at the UN. Did you know that there's a special rapporteur on violence against women and girls? Good for them. So we contacted the special rapporteur, and I think we're about three weeks into our wait for any response. So the fact that there's been zero response, now because finally at the UN there was an event earlier this week, and some of the groups are beginning to sort of make the kinds of statements, had they made them October 8th, 9th, 10th, it'd be a different situation today. So the silence of the alphabet soup of the NGOs, I would say the duplicity and complicity of the United Nations, starting from Mr. Guterres, I must say straight out. And the, I don't know if you caught this, but the host, one of the hostage families, when they met with the International Red Cross, had brought some medicines to try to get it to their loved one who needed something very specific. So they pulled the person, this person aside and got a lecture and said, you have to understand that the Palestinians are suffering too. Yeah, uh-huh. I heard about that, yeah. Right? This is from the International Red Cross. So suddenly, and this is no longer a left-right issue or whatever, they could be, be, whatever, but the people of Israel suddenly realized, oh my God, we're now, Israel is now the Jew of the nations. We now see the double standards. We now see... Uh, this uh, utter silence uh, in a world which we thought we were playing an important role collectively to raise our voices when these horrible things would take place. Where does it, where does it now uh, go, Rabbi? It, it, I mean, uh, we are one in terms of naming evil, calling out evil. But where, where does it now, where does it all head to? I mean, uh, Hamas has to be dismantled. There's no way out for civilization to to allow Hamas to continue. 
but what are we going to do about it as civilized societies? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think, again, for one thing is, for us in the faith community, we have to start talking about good and evil again. And unfortunately, good and evil, look, we, we can go back to the first story of the first family in, in Genesis. So we know it's part of the human condition, but we need to start speaking about it again. Um, they, they have to be crushed. Um, and uh, again, yesterday I saw two amazing clips, one of a Palestinian mother screaming that all of the goods coming in on those big trailer tr tractor trailer trucks are going immediately into tunnels people are starving and the second clip was unbelievable something that Ayad Yaari showed on Israeli TV don't ask me how he got it but teenagers at one of the border crossings who had stones and rocks the Hamas people waiting for the trucks have guns they started throwing rocks at them. They went after them and said, we don't have any food. Stop doing this. So I think, unfortunately, quite late in the game, uh, many Palestinians there on the ground understand what actually Hamas has been saying. They want to run up the casualty list. They don't really care about individual lives whatsoever, never mind Jews. They don't care about the people of Gaza uh, anyway, UNRWA has devised a method to uh, to create a new divine right uh, from generation to generation of refugee status. We have tens of millions of refugees all over the world in every generation. When I was in India, I, I saw you know, yeah. some of the people, hundreds of thousands of internal uh, refugees. refugees. So refugees are a real problem, and I'm sure there are legitimate Palestinian refugees as well. But we're not talking about refugee status for the fifth generation. The United Kingdom, the United States, Germany, Japan should take all of that money, put it in escrow, find the normals, and believe me, there are plenty of normals among the Palestinians and talented people, create from the ground up a new educational system uh, demand, um, you know, uh, access to uh, the curriculum and start creating the foundations because we've already lost the next generation for the next generation of children. So they're not taught from the age of five uh, to hate, you know, genocidal hate. And that is, I think, one of the most fundamental differences. And when you hear otherwise intelligent people saying, oh, uh, we have to empower the Palestinian Authority. You mean the Palestinian Authority that pays to slay Jews, uh, that rewards terrorist families for, for going? The, the Palestinians live all over the world. They have their own diasporas. They're an immensely talented people, usually successful, except in one spot. I wonder why. Because all the food goes into the tunnels and all the cash goes into the pockets. And yet to see the leaders of countries basically either just winking and nod and saying, we don't want to go into the weeds on this, or saying, well, you have to do the day after. Well, absolutely, there needs to be a plan for the day after. But don't go back for the umpteenth time to just make sure there's going to be another round of fighting in, in just a couple of years. There needs to be a fundamental change. I, agree. I, I think Israel, I think the people of Israel are up to it. 
Um, and I know since I go every time to Israel, I meet with the normals. They have to be empowered. So, uh, Rabbi, I, I, I want to give you the chance to answer um, a, a, a criticism, you know, that we, we hear uh, walking these streets. Um, and, and that is, okay, uh, we agree. We agree with all of that. But what about all the what about all the Palestinian uh, civilians that are dying uh, in, in Gaza uh, during the. Um, you know, uh, uh, during during this this war, like uh, you know, w- the international community is uh, uh, every statement that's issued that calls for the uh, release of the hostages, uh, which the unconditional release of the ho- hostages has a comma, <clears throat> and then it talks about um, uh, reducing civilian deaths and all of these things uh, uh, among the among the Palestinians in in, in Gaza. Um, so, so what do you what what do you what do you say to that? So uh, someone smarter than me said, and I'm, I'm an old man, so I can't remember who, but I read in the last few weeks, that war is not a war crime. War crimes are war crimes. And we all know, um, you know, we just had the anniversary of Pearl Harbor this week. In terms of the British Empire, it was domino effects starting the next day all over Asia. Fighting back against the Axis during World War II, which spawned untold millions of innocent casualties, death, destruction of of, uh, civilian infrastructure. Those were not war crimes. Those were the results of aggression by Germany, Italy, and Japan. The, The blood was on their hands during World War II. Uh, and after World War II, even though it was symbolic, the importance of the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal basically embedded into our civilization that very idea. There's good and evil. There are just wars and there were war crimes and crimes against humanity. When you keep coming back to the Israelis and saying, yes, but you guys are different, you're Jews. So we want you to live up to another standard. We want to make sure you don't kill innocent civilians. Um, If you make the same demands uh, in the uh, international legal arena, media, uh, faith communities across the board, then I think you have the right to say to Israel, you've got to do X, Y, and Z. Frankly, Israel doesn't need any lectures right now. And... I can't tell you how many Israeli soldiers died because they incorporate into their worldview that you try not to kill civilians. But when you take a look now at the footage that's coming out, Hamas, look, they live with with Israelis now for a couple of generations. There's a reason why they embed the launching pads at uh, UNRWA schools why they have a tunnel underneath a kid's uh, bedroom uh, uh, to uh, help fighters go from point A to point B because they know that the Jews won't shoot. And this whole thing was set up in a way, also in a sense, they knew we're coming as a trap to try to create a situation, a meat grinder, because they also know that the Jewish people, not only Jews, but Jew, we... we uh, we revere life. Now, Islam is against holding combatants 
both Judaism and Islam are very, uh, I think, focused on the idea that, you know, the, the human being who can say Allah Akbar or, uh, you know, God is great, in, in Hebrew, et cetera, in Hebrew, they deserve to be able to uh, be buried by their families. Hadar Golden has been held by Hamas, his body, for over seven years. And I don't know how many of the 130 plus hostages are still alive, but you can be sure, since Israel has recovered some of the bodies of others, that they're operating on a completely different level. And to have the absolute silence of faith leaders led, in my opinion, by Muslim leaders saying, hey, wait a second, that's not what the Quran says. You're going to get the same kind of thing you get in the secular world. Yes, but. Yes, but. You know, one of the things that they succeeded uh, in, uh, in the, already in the 20th century in Europe is to create the trope, and it's and now millions believe this in Europe, what the Nazis did to the Jews in the 1930s and 40s, the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians in the 21st century. The genius of their marketing is to co-opt the language, actually, of the Jewish people, Jewish history, Jewish values, and flip it. And when you don't have your neighbors, your friends, your allies, to say, hey, wait a second, that's wrong. When you have a lazy media, even before social media, basically taking it whole hog, I can understand why Germans, who are all constantly reminded about what Nazi Germany did, are looking for a way to say yes, but. But one last thing, my first, uh, after the uh, holiday was over on September 9th, uh, in October 9th, my first interview with, was with a European correspondent in Paris of FA, that's the Spanish AP. And, she, you know, it was refreshing. She said, Rabbi, I just want to tell you, I'm very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. I believe they deserve their own state. But I didn't sign up for this. That is what we were expecting to hear across the board, around the world. Not yes, but, but, you know, as a woman, what they've done? No, I didn't sign up for this. So instead of demanding of the pro-Palestinian camp to go back and to put a red line around Hamas and to recalibrate what it is that they're saying, they were going to the street. And I believe in part, because, you know, the Iranians are so deeply involved in this, is that the one thing Iran did not count on was that the president of the United States would fly to Israel to give the Israelis a collective hug, that he would fast track having enough Iron Dome countermeasures to knock out the thousands of missiles that would have decimated the Jewish state. And most remarkably of all, because it's clear that they were setting up a second front much more powerful with Hezbollah, bringing in the fleet to the eastern Mediterranean. So whatever else you want to say about the current administration, the president of the United States, in, in those moves that were made have so far succeeded in uh, making sure that more Palestinian civilians, more Lebanese civilians won't be killed. So, but it's important to understand, you know, we don't understand it. Why the, the media basically does the yes but on three-year-old hostages. 
what, what do you mean yes but where's the international red cross they know their job so you see a kind of double standard that i think that uh, is fueled by iran china and others who have uh, these days in social media they can push a lot of buttons and they're doing so very effectively johnny you know this has been very powerful and i think it's, it was a great response to what you asked there's a difference between war and war crimes this is war we wish this didn't happen and those crimes are really on the the blood of those people is in the hands of hamas and who is supporting that's a very important point the second thing is rabbi has been talking about the moral breakdown when it comes to israel and somehow as we proceed with the podcast and all i think the message should be calling out the moral ambivalence when it comes to israel not to everybody why why only this ambivalence when it comes to israel and secondly this whole thing of moral equivalence that's been going around it's total nonsense but we have to call it because this disease of moral today it may be israel tomorrow it may be somebody else so we have to call it out and accept what he's saying and i'm in you know i've been looking at this whole issue of evil evil is a reality and evil has to be defeated there is no yes but in between evil is evil deal with it that's that's a, a, exactly right i agree i agree with all of that and and the level of irrationality only bears one explanation and that is anti-semitism this irrational this irrational hatred and Rabbi Cooper as always a voice of, of moral thank clarity you. you challenge us Great. all thank you for joining may, us may I I know you're at a hard break but I, I can't go off air without giving you a piece of Torah not just <laughs> complaining so my grandson who got married in Jerusalem his name is Shalom you know what Shalom means yeah. his beautiful bride's name is Bracha Bracha means blessing Johnny mm-hmm. knows what I'm about to say the Talmud says that the good lord was preparing all of these amazing blessings for humanity and he was looking for the proper vessel to insert the brachot which is the plural of bracha and he discovered the good lord discovered that there was only one proper vessel for humanity's blessings and that vessel is shalom peace we all have to pray for the peace we're all junior partners which means we also have to fight for the peace it's not going to come by osmosis and it's not easy you know my feelings about you and uh, the struggles uh you know in terms of uh, india a great country that needs to get much greater uh and to and to live up i think india was the country that invented tolerance for different faiths So we have a lot of work everywhere. The United States is a disaster zone. I'm heading up over to Europe. Hmm. Purpose of the Jewish community, but in terms of the fundamentals, nothing has changed in the human condition since the first families talked about in Genesis. Yeah, yeah, hmm. And there is good and there is evil and we recognize it in this conversation and and hopefully people listening to it um who may be on the fence will uh, uh will will see the same. Thank uh, you. Thank thank you Rabbi Cooper. Thank you. God bless you. My reflection journey on just hearing and you know I've just put a piece out. And uh and my worries 
really worry is for Israel, for Europe and all, is not seeing evil as evil. Period. And just trying to wash it all away or cover it. And if you don't deal with the extreme Islamists right now in Israel and the larger context, we are all in for trouble. And and to think that this is going to go away without any kind of stand or aggression or fight uh, is is naivety. I mean, this is what concerns me of the modern age as to how they respond to evil. Yeah, and, and the fact that people are so struggling to see this for what it what it was and what it is. And look, I mean, we've had on this on this podcast, uh, we've uh, recorded conversations with um, with people who are delivering aid in U- Ukraine, uh, for instance. And we're watching this this additional war between Russia and Ukraine. Um, you know, obviously, everyone on this continent and in the United States, everyone supports this as a as a uh, as a necessary thing um, to defend democracy and everything else. But I was just this when I read the reporting on Israel uh, now, it's I was sitting back and asking myself, you know, have I seen a single news report on a single uh, a civilian casualty in the in the um, you know with you in Ukraine's defense of its territory against Russia? Is anybody calculating that? I'm sure civilians have died. You know, I, I don't know. I'm not an expert Many, on it, but yeah. I, but it, but that's what happens in war. I, when we were defeating ISIS, I was involved in, in a lot of human rights work in that time period. Like in, in the United States, in Europe, it was very clear, like, you have to defeat the evil. Even the Pope himself uh, issued a statement in, in this rare sort of theological moment, our pacifist Pope saying, like, this is a time for just just self-defense. And yet when it involves Israel and, a, and a, an organization designated as a terrorist organization by the European Union, European Union saying it should be eliminated by the United States, supported by the Islamic Republic of Iran, um, all of a sudden the rules don't apply. And, uh, and, and you, have to sort of, you have to sort of finish the evil. And the only excuse for that is this irrational anti-Semitism. And unfortunately now there's a white collar hatred of the Jewish people that exist in the United Nations, all these other institutions. And uh, um, Ra- Rabbi Cooper has been at this for f- over 40 years, um, gave us a, a dose of, of, of the truth. And I, I, I hope it uh, um, helps all of us uh, see with a little more moral clarity, not, yeah. not just this issue, but all issues. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today for Babel Undone. If this conversation had you thinking, then why don't you share it with someone else? For more episodes of Babylon Don or other amazing content that helps Christians live out their faith, you should head over to premiere.plus. That's Premier, P-R-E-M-I-E-R, uh, for the Americans listening in, dot plus.